If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to our second episode of And Security for All. I am Kim Hakem, your host. I'm also the CEO of FutureCon Events, which produces cybersecurity events all over North America. Prior, prior to that, I spent six years in the United States Navy with four years of reserves after. I've been in the cybersecurity industry for over 20 years, and that has allowed me to meet and work with some of the top cybersecurity leaders in the world. I'm so excited for my guest today. She is a woman who has led the path the way for many women in cyber. According to Cybercrime Magazine, women still only represent 20% of the global cybersecurity workforce. Many of you know her being she has her own show on Voice America called Data and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, which airs once a month on the business sector. Yesterday was International Privacy Day. This is a day that is to empower individuals, encourage businesses to respect privacy, safeguard data, and enable trust, which ties into our guest today and our topic of everything you need to know about the Internet of Things. Today, we're going to discuss IoT devices at work, home, medical devices, and related security, privacy for patient safety risk. And who better to have this conversation than the privacy professor, Rebecca Harold. For those of you who don't know her, let me tell you about this amazing lady who's made a huge footprint in the cybersecurity industry. So sit back for a minute. Um, it's going to take a few minutes. She has a pretty big resume. So let me talk about Rebecca. Rebecca is the founder and CEO of the Privacy Professor Consultancy. She... Uh, is the CEO of the Privacy and Security Brainiatric SaaS Services businesses she found in 2020 with her son, Noah. She has over 25 years of systems engineering, information security, privacy, and compliance experience. Rebecca has authored 20 books, 20 books, if you heard that wrong, it's 20 books. So that's pretty amazing. The 20th published was published by CRC Press titled Security and Privacy When Working from Home and Traveling. She has received numerous awards, including being the top three cybersecurity and privacy women and law professional of 220. 2020. She was named Top Female Fighting Cybercrime in 2019. Rebecca also serves as an expert witness and has keynoted on five continents. Rebecca is a subject matter expert in the NIST Cybersecurity for IoT prob, uh, Program Team 
And for those of you that do not know what NIST is, it's the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Prior to that, she was a subject matter expert of the NIST Privacy Framework team for a year and a half. She led NIST Smart Grid Privacy Teams for eight years. Rebecca was an adjacent professor for the Norwalk University MSISA program for nine years. She was also featured in a publication um, called Women Know Cyber, 100 Fascinating Females Fighting Cybercrime. This is just the highlights of her career. I could probably spend the full hour talking about her achievements, but we really want to get to talk to the privacy professor. So let's talk about the Internet of Things. And without further ado, welcome, Rebecca. Wow. Well, thank you so much for inviting me today, Kim. And thank you for that such wonderful uh, introduction. I really appreciate it. And I've really been looking forward to speaking with you about all these different topics today. They're all so important. There's so many of them. It it, it was really hard even trying to figure out what we were going to talk about in one hour. But I'm super excited to have you premiere on my second episode of Security and for All. So thank you for being here. Oh, yeah. And congratulations. Uh, Great show. Well, thank you. Well, I would imagine International Data Privacy Day, which happened yesterday, is like a national holiday for you, Rebecca, since privacy is your passion and everything you stand for and practice in. Yesterday, the Iowa governor, the state Rebecca resides in, declared January 28th to be Iowa Data Privacy Day. Rebecca has worked with the Iowa Governor's Office for the past 12 years to support the formal proclamation of the Iowa Data Privacy Day. So first of all, Rebecca, that's so exciting. Can you tell our listeners what this impact will do for the state of Iowa? And then let us know what was your part of this um, getting to this formal proclamation of Iowa Data Privacy Day? Yes. Well, I'm so happy uh, to have had the support of the governors. And there there have been three governors during the past 12 years uh, in both major parties. So it's a truly bipartisan issue. But I started officially participating in Data Protection Day. That The Data Protection Day is the European Union precursor of Data Privacy Day. And I started um, looking at doing things for that back in 2007. And I wrote about it back then. And then I was excited to see that it was coming formally to uh, the United States and uh, in 2009. So in 2009, uh, that's when I started getting the proclamations or wait, right before I started getting the proclamations, I did some local newscasts here in the Des Moines area. And uh, some of the folks in the area saw that and they said, well, you know, we, we want to know more about Data Privacy Day. We loved hearing some of the tips you gave about privacy because, you know, think about it back um, even just 12 years ago, there were a lot of privacy issues then. And after I had so many questions, why I decided that um, I was going to talk with the governor about it because I knew that these official proclamations are made and, and they carry weight. You know, when, when a governor says we're going to 
um, recognize this issue because we think it's important enough that I thought, well, let's do this then. So I started looking into how to officially get a proclamation for this with the governor's office and my team helped me. I have a great team of folks who support me in, in doing these types of things. And the governor at that time, uh, Governor Culver, um, he said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. The tradition started. So what I did that I think probably helped as well was I drafted the proclamation, the language for it. And why did I do that? Well, I did that because I thought if I go ahead and draft it up, uh, it won't be so much work for them to do. <laughs> if you can save the folks you want to support your efforts uh, some time, they will usually more often support your efforts because they don't have to start from zero, right, to get something drafted. So I drafted the proclamation, the governor approved of it, and uh, once they did that that first year, I keep doing it year after year. I update the proclamation draft, which then the governor's office goes in and edits to meet, you know, what how the governor would speak. And uh, I, I was just thrilled that each year they continue to um, approve of it. And, you know, with all that's going on in society, sometimes I kind of worry. It's like, I hope that they're still going to support, you know, this privacy proclamation. Um, and, and they have. So I've been very thankful for that. Well, that's really exciting. So what does that mean for the state of Iowa? Like, what are some of the things that are going to result out of this proclamation? Well, it's been really fun to see over the past few years that different businesses recognize it. So they might hold, you know, uh, like a recycling of uh, some computer stores have had recycling day on data privacy day where you can come in and they will actually, um, you know, take and remove the, all the data from your old hard drives or your old phones Um before you throw them away or before you sell them and things like that, or, or also shredding of papers that you want to throw away. But what I think has also helped a lot is the fact that um, often the local news stations, the four major news stations in the area often mention it as well. And when they mention it, then, you know, they talk about the importance. And I, over the years, I've had an opportunity to talk about it on a lot of those different broadcasts as well. Well, that is super exciting and congratulations to your success and making, you know, it's always great when you see someone make a difference in their state. So congratulations on that. But um, let's talk. I know you have your own show here and you're used to interviewing other people. So really briefly, because I, I, we have a lot to talk about. Let's talk about Rebecca and how you became the privacy professor, your trademark that trademark defines Rebecca Harold. You know, let's talk about way back in 1992 in your career, you had told me you established an antivirus program for a Fortune 100 company, and it was recognized by an Australia researcher. And they said that it was the first identified implemented corporate antivirus plan worldwide. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that? And and how did that happen and what did that mean? 
Yes. Well, thank you for that, because um, a lot of people, when they hear about antivirus in 19, you know, 92, they're like, oh, there was no viruses back in 1992. <laughs> well, yes, there were. <laughs> there started becoming viruses in 1989. But um, I started just as a really quick background. I started as a systems engineer and went into IT audit and then started building as a result of an audit, the security and privacy program. And as part of that program at the time, and I, some of your um, listeners will probably be too young to, to remember this, but in the, you know, in 1990, why uh, it was primarily mainframes that we were using, but, uh, as time, you know, as we came into 91, 92, that's when the desktop computers started showing up in corporate America. That's when we started using software on your desktop and connecting to those distributed servers called NetWare. <laughs> do you do you remember NetWare, Kim? Maybe. I do. Unfortunately, yeah, I'm 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 right there with you. <laughs> yeah. So you know, so besides having all the the centralized mainframe, which is very well protected, um, because we weren't attached to the internet either, but we started using all of these desktops that had NetWare servers. And what did those desktops had? Well, they had floppy drives, you know, five and a quarter inch floppy drives, right? Um, if people can even imagine that, some of them might remember the three and a half inch chart, you know, smaller drives, but we had those. And one of the things I did was uh, software copyright management. But during the audits of looking at who all was licensed for the, the software, I started encountering viruses on the different uh, copies on those floppy drives and that concerned me and so it's like wow you know how did we get these uh, viruses well uh, a lot of it had to do with bad practice where people were making unauthorized copies which I identified that's a different issue altogether but um, where people were getting their software from uh, the businesses that sold software, they would come and they had the viruses on the software, on the floppy drives there. Or they would also purchase um, these desktop computers and it came already loaded on the hard drive. And I know when I've talked about this with some of my students, you know, you mentioned the nine years I spent as an adjunct professor at Norwich. They're like, well, why would people even care about viruses? in the early 90s. But Kim, you probably know from being in the Navy and knowing about, you know, cyber warfare and so on as well. Um, it Viruses haven't always been around just to get access to your personal data. I mean, viruses were used to actually disrupt um, companies' networks and bring systems down and, and, and destroy data or bring it to a standstill. I mean, there were many other things besides just trying to get to personal data. So um, that's the background. But so what I did was I, I planned and spent a lot of time into what we should do when not only implementing um, antivirus software. And I don't know, do you mind if I say the software I chose? Oh, that's fine. Okay. So, so what we did was I, I looked at possible solutions and, and it included back then McAfee and Norton, but I ultimately decided upon FPROT Professional. Uh, and so I 
I spent a lot of time speaking with the key stakeholders through the company. I planned out how we would run software, antivirus software on all of these computers, desktop computers that we had to go personally to each computer because we weren't networked in a way where we could distribute it through the network. So I planned for that, got that implemented, uh, and then created um, virus reaction plan, I called it back then, uh, instead of, you know, instant response is what we call it now. But I did that so that if people would have the indicator that said, oops, stop, don't do it anymore, we found a virus, then I had this plan come out. Well, that was the first uh, plan uh, that a lot of people who were my peers at the time said, wow, can you tell us what you did to create that? Because they were at large corporations too. So I actually ended up writing an article about it that was uh, published in 1995. And uh, long story short, come to last year, I got a call from a PhD researcher down at a university in Australia. And it was like, wow, well, hello, you know, what do you want to talk about? What he said, well, I want to talk about the antivirus program that you created back in the early 1990s. So that just blew my mind. <laughs> and I'm like, because I totally forgot at that point that I had written this uh, journal article uh, about what we did. And so uh, it was actually in a wily journal called uh, International Journal of, Net of Network Management. But um, he asked me about it. And then he said, you know, I'm doing research to see how long companies have actually been addressing antivirus um, activities. And he said, from what I can tell, yours is the, is the earliest one that I could find any documentation about with regard to actually being put into actual use within an organization. And so it's kind of cool because uh, just a few weeks ago, I actually found his paper that he wrote about it then. Uh, so it, it's really cool to see it, it documented that, yeah, this was, uh, you know, the first uh, antivirus program implemented within a large corporation. Because over the years when I've said I did it that early, um, folks at like security conferences, especially the vendors, the antivirus vendors, when I tell them that, they're like, no, you didn't do that. You didn't have <laughs> antivirus. And I'm like, well, yes, we did. Yes, I did. So, Well, it's interesting. So all the way back to 1992, now let's fast forward to 2021, you know, the technology, the evolution of technology. Yes. And here we are today and antivirus is like it seems like just a small problem of all kinds of layered problems but um you know let's shift gears a bit and um go back to we were talking about yesterday was international da data privacy day and futurecom we honored that this week we had a cybersecurity conference and we actually had a woman that um you've worked with in the past leslie lambert she mm -hmm. um keynoted our event and she talked about the future of privacy so i want to continue talking about the future of privacy and let's talk let's start with um the future 
future privacy in our homes, the Internet of Things. Rebecca, how many devices do you think, and you don't have to be specific because it's probably going to be broad, do you think the average American probably has in their home and probably just thinks these devices are cool, they have no idea the risk of these toys, gadgets, appliances, security systems, that these devices could actually be spying on them and how vulnerable, you know, Americans are, are globally, everyone is in their homes. Yes. Well, um, I've done a little research in that, and I know the average is right around 8 to 10, which some people listening are probably saying, oh, I don't have that many. But, you know, when you think about it, do you have some sort of fitness tracker? That fitness tracker is probably an IOT device. I mean, all of them are, I think, unless you're doing it by, you know, pencil and notebook. Um, (laughs) But there's those, there's your digital uh, virtual assistants, you know, the Echoes, the Google Homes, your security cameras around your house. I mean, those are IOT devices, your uh, nanny cams, if you will, or your baby cameras. Those are connected. Uh, Most of them are. Your your actual cars, um, most of them have IOT devices. In fact, in um, one of the expert witness cases that I did, that I provided some testimony for, it it involved someone being tracked through their uh, smart car by an assaulter. And, um, you know, it's just that so many people just, they really don't think about how a really cool device can do such cool things. Well, they can do such cool things because they're connected to, you know, online um, clouds that do all of this processing and analyzation of all of their data that it's collecting. So uh, it's one of those things that a lot of people don't think about. Well, they say that an estimated 80% of the IoT devices are vulnerable to, you know, a wide range of attacks, again, such as the lights, the appliances, our locks, you, like mm-hmm. you said, the security cameras, they all have cybersecurity risks. So we think these things in our home that are protecting us, they're actually violating our privacy. How secure do you think we are? And, you know, what can you comment on about those type of situations? Sure. So, and I've actually talked with a lot of manufacturers of IoT devices, starting with medical device manufacturers years ago. But I think the the problem is a lot of times consumers just assume that, well, of course it's going to be have security built into these devices, why wouldn't they? You know, people buy cars expecting that their brakes are going to work and that their seatbelts are going to work. When they buy devices, they expect that those devices are not going to harm them by doing bad things with their data. So they assume that there's security uh, and privacy in there. And they get a false sense of of uh, comfort, I believe, when they have to like enter a PIN because they're like, oh, well, if I have to enter a PIN or a password to, to turn it on, that must mean it has all the other security and privacy controls. But the fact is, most of them don't. Um, and when I've talked over the past, gosh, 12 years or so with different manufacturers, a lot of times they tell me, well, we aren't going to create capabilities for security and privacy if 
if our consumers don't tell us that they want those capabilities. So think about that. It's kind of an odd situation. That, and I think it's, it's changing now. So all, to all the manufacturers out there listening, I know that it's, it's changing now. But again, this was back originally the reasons that I was told about this. So if the manufacturers say, well, we aren't going to build in security and privacy controls because our uh, customers don't tell us they want that. And then the customers are telling me, well, we 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 just assume that they're built in. How would the customers know to ask to have those things built in if they didn't know they weren't built in <laughs> to begin with? So it, it's one of those weird situations. But now I think awareness is raising enough that consumers are starting to say, hey, we want these controls built in because they're seeing these different incidents happening where uh, devices are recording them when they didn't say the trigger word, and they're finding that people are hacking in through those devices while they're attached to their Wi-Fi networks and taking data, and, you know, they're becoming more aware of these things. So are the manufacturers, are there any liabilities that they have for not implementing the proper compliance standards? Well, so there's a, a couple of um, ways that these issues are kind of coming into play now. So first issue is there's liability depending upon what the IoT device provider has communicated about uh, what their device will do. So where are they communicating this? Look at a manufacturer's privacy notice for uh, information that describes what that device is going to have capable with regard to security controls and privacy protections. If their privacy notice says all the things that different laws or regulations say that they need to have, but then it is discovered that the device itself is not actually supporting those posted promises, that creates a huge liability because basically they are saying to their customers through their posted privacy and security notices, hey, we promise we're going to do this to protect your data. This is how we're going to make sure that our device is secure. But then if they people find out that actually that wasn't a part of the capability of the device, all of a sudden this can look like an unfair and deceptive business practice. So that's where the FTC uh, comes in and they can give some huge fines and penalties and they have under the FTC Act for unfair and deceptive business practices. So that liability has been around for quite a while. Um, but then we are finally getting uh, now a, uh, in December, I think it was December 4th, December uh, maybe 5th, the uh, first federal IoT uh, device security law was uh, actually signed in, into law and they're given 180 days from that date to be implemented. So at least with federal um, devices, they're going to have to meet certain security requirements. So there's liabilities there as well. Well, we're, we're 
getting close to taking a quick break, but before we do that, um, I got your newsletter today that's from mm. the Privacy Professor, Tips of the Month. You do, can you tell our listeners, you, we have about 30 seconds, how they can subscribe to your monthly Tips of the Month? Yes. Oh, yes. Go to privacyguidance.com and there's a box in the upper right part of the screen. All you have to do is just enter your email address and you will be put on my mailing list. I only use that mailing list to distribute the the free tips each month. So you will only get one message from me each month with those tips. I don't use those lists for marketing. Well, that is great. We're going to take a quick break, and then we will be back with The Privacy Professor. Thanks, everyone. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at FutureConHQ. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to And Security for All with Kim Hakem. To reach the show today with your questions or comments for Kim or her guest, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to khakem at futureconevents.com. Now back to And Security for All. Well, welcome back to Security for All. I am Kim Hagum, and with me is my guest, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. Today's show, we've been talking about the Internet of Things. We spent the first half of the show talking about the Privacy Professor and yesterday being International Data Privacy Day and keeping your home safe. You know, it's interesting, and I I talked about 80% of IoT devices are causing a wide range of attacks in homes. Well, now, our home is not only our home anymore. For now, many of us globally, this has become our workplace also. Rebecca, there are outstanding amounts of new threats in 2020 and continuing in 2021 because of how many are now in a digital workforce at home, providing a whole set of new uh, cyber risk. And then on top of that, you have your kids doing school at home. So let's just start talking about some of the um, things that we first saw in 2020. I feel like the industry 
the industry quickly fix some things, but can you give us some of your insights of what you first saw when everyone went home, employees had several different devices, children were working at school. What were some of the tips that you can still continue to provide people, you know, um, post, you know, and now of cybersecurity from and working from home? Yes. Well, gosh, there are so many because, you know, most organizations, even if they did have uh, remote working policies and procedures, it wasn't on a large scale. I mean, a few organizations had a lot of remote workers, but for the, the most part, most, you know, they didn't have that many employees just working full time from their homes and for those that did they who also had children uh, living in the same space those children were usually at school during the work day and so they didn't have also you know students doing online learning as well well when this happened it just happened so fast and it wasn't like it just happened to one organization that they had to deal with it it happened worldwide so we were thrown into the deep end of this pool of digital uh, intermingling of home and personal use <laughs> with business use. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, we had business networks that we used to be able to have a view on from a, you know, a, a privacy and security practitioner perspective. They used to be able to, to view pretty well what was going on in their corporate networks within their facilities or within some very carefully planned and implemented connections remotely, all of a sudden people or organizations were like, oh, how can we get everybody online quickly? You know, we, we didn't plan for this. Well, what are people using? You know, there's this popular tool that people are using called Zoom. And since they're already using Zoom to talk with, you know, their friends and family, let's just go ahead and, and get that and use it because it's really easy to use. Well, it's really easy to use, but, you know, Kim, as you mentioned earlier, there were some problems there because that was not built to be a corporate, secured, privacy-friendly tool. That was created to be a consumer, end-user, easy-to-use tool to just communicate with a few people. So, you know, we know of several of the problems with encryption and uh, Zoom bombing and all that that went on early on. And I think it still goes on because people haven't updated their Zoom version yet to get to a more secure version. But you had that. So you have these online meetings going on uh, with a, a solution that has security vulnerabilities and certainly privacy problems a lot of organizations didn't realize when you were using not just Zoom, but any type of online meeting tool, you have to think about the fact that um, if you're connected online from your computer that's also connected to your Wi-Fi network and your Wi-Fi network is connected to other people in the home, who are using it, and they might be connected out to yet other networks, all of a sudden you have this huge chain of networks that have all these different pathways, you know, going from one network to another to another that can possibly allow an intruder or a malicious actor to be able 
to find their way into a, a very highly prized uh, corporate database or application where they can either um, plant some malicious code or they can exfiltrate valuable data. So that is something that a lot of organizations are trying to deal with still um, because it, it would take a lot of time to plan to implement that kind of, of environment for widespread remote learning anyway. If you were told you were going to do that, you know, just think about it. A lot of organizations, it would take them probably six to nine months to actually make the plan and -hmm. then how to roll it out. But here, all of a sudden, everybody just one day was like, oh, we need to stay at home. And now we have people in the area. One thing that a lot of people I've noticed do not think about is their physical environment when they are actually in these online meetings. I'm seeing more of them address it. But, you know, Kim, when people are on on the meetings and they have a, a view of what's going on around them, uh, if they have people in that meeting, especially if there's like two or 300 people or somebody made it a public meeting, so now anyone who saw the link that was posted to Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn can actually join in because there wasn't a setting to keep them out. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, all of a sudden, you could actually have vulnerabilities because your environment is viewable. So if you have a malicious actor that says, oh, this person is a VP at this really high-end um, uh, rich corporation, and coming from the military, you could probably really relate to this too, how there's certain levels of people in organization that will be made targets. And if uh, those are targets and someone is on there and can see that they you know, somebody is next to a, a road and it's it's apparent that they don't have any fence between them and their backyard, all of a sudden that kind of opens up physical problems. Plus, here's another one that I've seen a lot. You know how people love to use whiteboards uh, mm-hmm. and flip charts? Well, they're doing that for their online meetings too, but what do they do? They don't clean them off after a meeting, so all of a sudden they have these detailed, uh, sensitive plans on their whiteboard behind them. And now all of a sudden they're getting onto some other meeting. Maybe they're going to an ISACA meeting or, you know, uh, ISSA meeting or something like that. And right behind them, there might be passwords for certain user IDs, admin user IDs shown, or there might be some, you know, very specific plans on there. And we've actually seen that happened uh, multiple times throughout 2020 where people have done screenshots and posted them to say, Hey, look what, so, you know, look what this company's planning to do. So uh, there's just so many issues to, to. Well, and, and the cyber criminals, you know, that we've become easier targets and these bad actors, you know, the, the cyber threats again have soared in 2020 and they keep going up in 2021. And so we've made it easier. Do you feel like we've made it easier for them? Because not only are we so vulnerable to everyone seeing our whole world behind us and, um, 
but we're using all these different IoT devices while we're working from home. There's more TVs on, there's more music on, there's more, you know, there's more security cameras on. Everything's mm-hmm. being used. So have we made it that much easier for the cyber criminals? Well, exactly. It's much easier for cyber criminals um, and because of all those different pathways, every one of those devices that connects into your Wi-Fi or to your laptop or your phone that then is also connected to your Wi-Fi network. You know, as I said you know, earlier, we can create chains of networks that are just all connected with each other. But here's another thing cyber criminals do. Because cyber criminals, when you hear that, and of course you can have a criminal, cyber criminal on the other side of the world, but cyber criminals also know how to take uh, advantage of physical vulnerabilities. And with home workers, there's a big problem with the fact that trash day. Um, you have home workers now who are throwing stuff away into the trash cans that they take out the night before the trash gets picked up in the morning. Um, I don't know, a lot of your listeners may not have heard of dumpster diving, but dumpster diving has been around for many decades, and it's still widely used. Uh, If someone knows that an executive or an IT administrator or a help desk person or a manager, anyone who might have information that could be value to them, lives in a certain location, uh, they'll check out their garbage can on trash day to see if they threw away something that might be valuable to get into the business. Or it doesn't matter if it has to do with the business or not, because if people throw away their um, credit card statements or their other types of documents that has personal information on it, they're going to use that too. So uh, what the, the dumpster divers do they take that information they find and then they sell it, they digitize it and sell it to the folks who then sell it to other crooks in the dark web and the deep web. Um, you know, that that's one thing about the cyber criminals. They have a never ending supply of valuable data that they can purchase from many different locations and you know, what we have to do is minimize that data that they get or make the data so that it is not uh, valuable to them. Well, and that takes me right into the next thing I was going to talk about is, you know, one of the biggest types of attacks is social engineering. And, Mm. you know, we can have the best software money can buy, but you probably know what the weakest part of the security chain is, the human being. So, you know, how... You know, let's talk about social engineering a little bit. And there's probably some listeners because this show is, you know, really people understanding what cybersecurity is. So can you kind of define social engineering and how what's happening in that? Yes. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm seeing so much more of it here recently. So social engineering is where you manipulate the emotions or Um, the attitudes of a person so you can get valuable information from them. Now, there's actually 
a formal science of social engineering called neurolinguistic programming. So if you want to sound even fancier, you can say, you know, NLP methods, which is basically social engineering methods uh, that you can use to manipulate people to get them to give you information or do things that will be valuable to them. Where I'm seeing this, Kim, on Facebook, oh my gosh, I must get, and I don't know why I'm a target, but for some reason I get probably uh, six to eight different catfishing mm-hmm. uh, attempts on Facebook. So the first thing I do, you know, when I see somebody who I don't know, they send me a friend request, and this is not just me. It would be for Kim. I, I'm sure you get them, and other people, men and women of all ages. But you get them, and it's like, okay, who's this person? And usually, I've had a lot of people who use photos of um, like people who were actually generals, uh, you know, in the military or some other high ranking in the military. I get people who um, were executives in companies or people who were actors. You know, it's just weird. What the social engineers do is they try to, to create a persona using an image that looks appealing and friendly and like, looks like somebody that you'd like to know so that they can start communicating with their target and over time build up this trust so that the target will give them uh, information. But if you look at the actual profile of those people who are giving you these requests, the first thing I do is I go to their profile and see how long they've had this profile created. A lot of social engineering or catfishing Um, scammers online they will create they will have created these images um, these profiles only a few months ago so there's a big flag another big flag is if you look at their likes um, for some reason when they go in and create these profiles they do all these likes from the actual criminals location where they're coming from and I found a lot of my catfishing folks are coming from the Middle East and from Africa. So I see like 50 to 60 different um, sports teams that they like or news agencies, and they're all coming from over there. But yet when I look at the proclaimed location of the person who's in the, the photo, they say that they're from someplace like California or Florida or, or here in Iowa. And I'm thinking, oh, this is this is interesting. It doesn't match up, right? Well, so. yeah, it's really interesting. I'm sure my uh, some of the some of my teams that work for me. I know that they're sitting here right now thinking this. We have people that try to come to our conferences. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we used to be physical conferences all over North America. We pivoted into virtual and all of a sudden we started seeing you know we 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 censor who can come into our events by their IT titles and you know we try to verify everyone on LinkedIn but all of a sudden after about six events and we've done probably 30 40 virtual events mm-hmm. you'd start seeing these people that were the same people we couldn't verify them but they they gave themselves a really great name a gr- yeah. really great title um, a blank 
face on LinkedIn. And so same thing, Ah, you know, then they were just, and then here they are. That's a scary thing because it's a cybersecurity conference. So we've really tightened up our security on, you know, really um, confirming, you know, not anyone can just get through our get through the event. But that was part of the whole progression of working from home and lessons learned during these times of, you know, unknown things that ha- that happened to many people. You know, one of the things I want to um, switch over to is really quickly, I want to talk one a little bit about IoT and artificial intelligence and save mm. us some time for medical devices. But do you think, you know, um, IoT and artificial intelligence, it's not a trend anymore. You know, it's become the digital heartbeat and it continues to grow at a steady rate. Right. The internet of everything, do you think it's replacing humans and how do we control the new digital workforce with the new tools that can continue to replace old tools. Are the humans losing control? Well, that's the fear of a lot of people out there. I guess it always comes back to, you know, humans are the ones who are actually building the AI right now. They're the ones programming it in. So, you know, it reminds me of, of, um, uh, I robot the the movie and, and those types of fiction that are becoming real time, uh, real life. But, here's what we need to do and here's what leads to harms in the near term but then leading to like with artificial intelligence losing control of the the robots or the automated processes in the long term in the short term i worry that the the ai algorithms were not thoroughly test to meet the widest range of possibilities before they were actually launched. And so for individuals who or situations that don't fall within the narrow scope of their testing, you're going to end up having a lot of accidents and wrong judgments resulting in harmful actions uh, with bad algorithms or algorithms that weren't fully tested. And then I also worry about the data because those IoT devices, the data within them has to be accurate, right? That it's that they're creating, they're deriving, that they're collecting. If you don't have a way to maintain data integrity within those devices and that data gets modified inappropriately and AI is used upon um, unauthorized uh, de- or inaccurate data, then you're going to have some really bad results as well. So I fear that that's going to lead to things uh, that are not beneficial. And we are getting to a point, I'm seeing a lot of organizations, tech organizations that want to just start automating almost everything. I don't see us getting to a point where you know, we'll be in a Blade Runner type of situation anytime soon because I just think um, the the programming that we do still has too many flaws in it to actually result in uh, that smart of AI. I think we will get more bad um, situations and incidents occurring from not having really thoroughly, rigorously programmed 
artificial intelligence before we actually get to artificial intelligence that is just so um, advanced that it actually can think for itself. So in other words, human flaws are going to be the downfall and prevent us from creating AI um, that's going to actually be able to take over human activities in the long run. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to boarding a plane and not having any pilots in the cockpit. <gasps> yeah. So, <laughs> yes, but yeah. that's a whole nother episode that we could talk <laughs> about. But, you know, we don't have a ton of time left, but I really want to talk about um, medical devices. You know, mm. we've um, briefly talked about that, you know, it's scary. There's a lot of things happening. We have so many of our loved ones under the care of these amazing healthcare workers. Now medical devices are being used at a halt, an all-time high. Mm-hmm. Um, there's such security, privacy, and patient safety risks. Our healthcare industry already has enough to deal with, but within the last year and a half, hackers have held medical records hostage, infected mm-hmm. devices with malware, caused dozens of shutdowns, uh, hospitals in one sweep. So what's the biggest attacks that we should be aware of when it comes to medical devices, especially when you have somebody controlling someone's pacemaker or remote control devices in humans? What's your um, take on that? Well, of course, I could talk for a week on this, but Mm -hmm. I think one of the the best thing we can do is decentralization because a lot of these ransomware situations um, are these are occurring where you have every all the data, all the the healthcare data for an entire hospital system or whatever centrally located, and then that one huge database is taken for hostage, right? Ransomware, and you can't get to it. If we actually start learning how to decentralize and um, have the locations for the the different data sets to be located in different locations where you don't even have the possibility of ransom uh, criminals being able to take an entire hospital's database all at once, that would help a lot. And I know these different types of distributed storage systems help to provide that, but I think more needs to be done so that not only the logic behind how those distributed storage locations communicate with each other are um, seamless and and easy to use, but that it makes the cyber criminals so that they just can't launch a ransomware attack because of the data that is located in so many places. I mean, you'd have to almost have an insider that would know about uh, how these work to be able to do that. And and again, this is a topic that could we could discuss for a week, but at, at a very high level, I think that would be one of many possible ways to defeat uh, ransomware criminals. So we are um, we are going to wrap up. Um, I wasn't paying attention, but it looks like we are running out of time. But we have 10 seconds. Is there anything that you could say? What could someone do to protect their privacy differently from the privacy professor? I would say go to Privacy Security Brainiacs. Yesterday, we provided a free ebook with three big things that everybody should do to start improving their privacy now. So get your free ebook there. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining another episode of Ant Security for All. 
for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events.